Well, I'm glad to be here. And I was glad to have mashed potatoes. I, I don't know why. It's, they seem kind of like ordinary, you know, but there's just nothing like good mashed potatoes. You know, it is a good idea to take notes. I don't know a lot about the brain. I, I fell in uh, on New Year's Day afternoon and got a concussion. Landed right on my head. Um, but at any rate, I went to the chiropractor because, you know, chiropractors can do um, manipulation of the plates. And I went one time and I came home and my wife and I watched Jeopardy and she said, you've never answered so many questions on Jeopardy. <laughs> Just one trip to the chiropractor. Well, then I went the next time for a follow-up, and, you know, he checked everything out, and he said, you can, you, it's good news. You can tell your wife there's nothing going on up there. <laughs> That's about my extent of the knowledge of the brain. I, I, have, I do know that brain studies indicate that if you take notes when you're listening to a speaker, you will remember those notes better than if, even if you never look at the notes again, you're better off taking notes. You're also better off taking notes by hand with a pencil and paper than you are typing into a keyboard. I have students that are such good typers that when I'm lecturing, they actually become like a court stenographer. They can just, they're not really thinking about anything I'm saying. They're just putting it down. You're not processing it. And so there's something that happens between your fingers and your brain when you are listening that there's an integration that takes place that you can take the notes and throw them away, but you'll retain more having taken the notes with a pen or a piece of paper. I'm not going to convince all of my students to go back to pen and paper. Um, and I love technology. Okay, so we are going to study the whole of the book of Jonah uh, this weekend. It is a bit shorter than the book of Psalms. Uh, I love teaching on the book of Jonah. Believe it or not, the very first time I ever preached, I think I was probably a I don't know, maybe a sophomore or a junior in college. And my sister and her husband, my sister was a number of years older than me. She was at a Methodist church about 45 minutes away. And for some reason, they asked me to come and to uh, preach at their church one Sunday. And so I preached on the book of Jonah, uh, the whole book. My text was the entire book of Jonah. Um, we're not going to, well, in a sense, tonight we're going to do the whole book, but not quite the way I did it back then. I did something more dramatic. When I, I was converted in, my, in the spring of my senior year in high school, uh, so when it was time to do my English book report for that semester, I thought, I'm going to do my book report on the Bible. So for my English class, I did a book report on the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and my English teacher actually was complimentary. He just said, next time, maybe you could like pare it down a little bit, uh, something a little bit smaller. So Jonah, I learned from him. Jonah's a little bit, uh, a little bit smaller. Um, 
In undergrad, that's where I started to study Hebrew. And in fact, I've just been in correspondence with my, uh, my college Hebrew professor. He's now retired. He taught for a good number of years at, uh, in, at RTS Jackson, and then he moved to Trinity uh, in Deerfield, Illinois. We were just, for a project, we were just conversing back and forth, and I'm always reminded, the summer after my first year of Hebrew in undergrad, we sat on his back porch uh, once a week, and I did a summer uh, independent study with him, and we read the book of Jonah in Hebrew. And that was just an amazing experience. Well, I learned from that. I've been teaching Hebrew at the graduate level for 30 plus years now. And I have read the book of Jonah with my students uh, in what we call Hebrew 3. We have a sequence of three Hebrew courses. And by the time they get to the third one, they can actually do some basic reading. And I've read the book of Jonah with my students every year, 30 plus years. And it never loses its charm. Uh, I liken the book of Jonah to the Narnia Chronicles. Anybody, has anybody read the Narnia Chronicles? Maybe watched one of the movies uh, on uh, when Disney did uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think. Um, you know, the Narnia Chronicles are so simple that you can just read them to your young children and they follow along, they get the story. I have no doubt that there have been PhD dissertations written on Lewis's Narnia Chronicles because they are such sophisticated literature. And that's really a genius of a writer, the genius of Lewis, that he can write such sophisticated literature with so many intertwined themes in it. Uh, A story that's about a mythic place called Narnia with mythic creatures like Mrs. Beaver, and, uh, and yet the gospel is woven in through that simple story so profoundly. The book of Jonah is like that. Most young kids, if you say, you know, what happened to Jonah? He got swallowed by a whale. They can get the basic storyline. I kid you not. Every time I read Jonah in Hebrew with my students, I learn something new. You'd think like after 31 years, you'd get it, right? But students will ask me questions, and I'll say, you know what? Never even thought about that before. And so we talk about it, we think through it, and I gain new insights into this marvelous book. Uh, Of course, the whole Bible is like that. Uh, But Jonah in particular has this special magic where it just stays fresh every time we look into it. And as you can see on the uh, front of your handout, uh, Jonah, Finding the Heart of God, uh, the book of Jonah as our story, I have no doubt that the, the, the book of Jonah was written, uh, and it was written in a way that it, it was to, it's to suck us into the story, to make us identify with Jonah uh, so that we can do some self-examination to see the degree to which that old Jonah still resides in us. Um, It's a very simple book, but when you slow down and read it, it's also a very uncomfortable book because it forces us to ask questions about our own walk with God. And, 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 And in seeing ourselves in Jonah, 
it forces us to see some things in ourselves that maybe we don't want to take a good look at. So um, we're going to do the whole book of Jonah, Lord willing, this weekend. Now, um, if Jonah were a TV program, it would have been a short miniseries. It would have been just two episodes. Look at Jonah 1, uh, 1. Notice in it, well, let's look at the first two verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. 1, 1 to 2. Now just skip over to uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. A virtual repetition. How's 1-1? Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh and preach. 3-1, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh and preach. Now, Hebrew mothers were different than our English teachers. Our English teachers told us when we were writing essays to vary our vocabulary. Because if you don't vary your vocabulary, if you use the same word again and again and again, your writing is going to be what B word? It's going to be boring. So vary your vocabulary. Hebrew mothers said, repeat your vocabulary. If you don't repeat your vocabulary, how will anybody know the main point you're trying to make? So English style and Hebrew style are completely different in that regard. So when, you, when you're reading the Old Testament, always look for repetition. Repetition is often a key to getting the main point of a story or a psalm or a sermon out of Isaiah. But repetition also helps us to divide stories into chunks. I was talking to my son. Uh, he called me. He didn't know I was out of town and wanted to know if my wife and I wanted to come over to their place tonight. And he said, right now I'm feeding Owen. Owen's like, Owen, he's my grandson, I should know. Let me see. He's just about to have his first birthday in a couple of months. So he's not one. And um, he's just starting to eat what he, Evan said, this is the first time he's really eating big people food, because Evan was just giving him some of the food that they had for lunch. But I guarantee you, let's say that they had steak for lunch. Uh, Evan did not put like a nine-ounce T-bone in front of Owen and say, have at it. What, the, what, what do you do with little kids when you're first giving them big people food? You cut it up into chunks. And so when you're studying the, the Old Testament, and the New as well, whether it's a psalm or a prov section of Proverbs or Jonah, it's really helpful to cut it up into chunks. Uh, we do that when we write letters, don't we? What are the chunks that we call in a letter? Paragraphs. How do you indicate to somebody that you've gone from one paragraph to another? You can, you can indent. What's another way that you can do mark a paragraph? You skip a line, you have that extra white space. So we have those kinds of ways of saying, paragraph one is over, here comes paragraph two. Well, 
Hebrew mothers didn't teach their kids to indent. They didn't teach them to skip a line. They taught them to repeat. So when you see a repetition like, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, get up and go to Nineveh and preach. And then in 3.1, you see the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, get up and go to Nineveh and preach. That repetition is their way of saying, here starts the second big chunk. And that's why I say that if Jonah were a miniseries, there would be two episodes. Uh, the first two chapters are one episode, and the second two chapters are another episode. Now, keep in mind when, when, I'm not sure who wrote the book of Jonah, but whoever wrote it, they didn't have uh, chapter numbers. They didn't have verse numbers. They didn't have indentation. It was just line after line after line after line. And the reader was expected to know where the chunks were. And the reason they knew where the chunks were was because they also had Hebrew mothers. And their Hebrew mother taught them that when you're listening to a story, listen for what our word, repetition, because it'll help you put stuff into chunks. Now, uh, so we have two episodes. Each one of those episodes can be broken down. If you have a paragraph, your paragraph is probably not all one what? Probably not all one sentence. That paragraph is broken into some smaller units called sentences. Uh, what's a paragraph? A paragraph is simply a group of sentences that are more closely related to each other than they are to the surrounding uh, sentences. Uh, now, the, the chunks that are just down from episodes, we're just going to call a scene. You know, when you're watching a TV show, uh, you might just watch one episode one night, right? But that episode isn't just one big scene, is it? Scenes change. How do you know when a scene in a book or a movie changes? How do you know it's a new scene? Well, change. What, what can change? The, the setting, where, where they're located. They'll fade out of the office, and then they're out in the park. New scene. What else can change a scene? Music can change a scene. It's very dramatic, and then it's very light. What other kind of change? Characters. Whenever a new, you'll see on TV that, that the, the husband and wife will be talking to each other in the kitchen, and then all of a sudden, the kids are fighting in the bedroom. That's a new scene. And then the next scene is probably the mom going to the bedroom to break up the fight. See, but once she comes in, it's a new scene because there's change in time. Uh, you'll see this where they'll, they'll put on the TV screen two days prior. Uh, three years later, when you change location, when you change characters, you can tell that we're in a new scene. And Jonah's ancient literature, but they, they back then, they used the same kind of techniques. Characters coming in, characters going out, new location, uh, new topic, that sort of thing. So in the book of Jonah, those first two chapters, here are the scenes. First, we're going to look at Jonah's commission and his flight. And then Jonah and the pagan sailors. 
You know, that's Jonah on the boat, pagan sailors, what should we do? Throw him overboard. He's going down for the third time. And then the third scene is chapter 2, Jonah's grateful prayer. Praise God. I was about dead and God saved me. So Jonah's commission in his flight. And then uh, starting at verse 4, Jonah's uh, relationship with the pagan sailors. And then chapter 2, Jonah's grateful prayer. Well, the second episode has four scenes. The first three are parallel to the three scenes in the first half of the book. First of all, we read the, we read the, the uh, most of it, Jonah chapter 3, first couple of verses, Jonah's recommission and his compliance. So Jonah's commission and his uh, flight from God. Parallel to that, Jonah's recommission and his compliance. Now, I'm using the word compliance, not obedience. Because when we'll get there, we'll see that even though Jonah was now doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing, he was not doing the right thing from his heart. He was complying. But biblical obedience isn't just an external conformity. It's from a heart of affection for God and for God's ways. So he's growing, but he still has a lot of room to grow. Then the next scene is Jonah and the pagan Ninevites. In the first episode, it's Jonah and his dealings with the pagan sailors. And corresponding to that in the second episode, we have Jonah and his dealings with the pagan Ninevites. Well, what comes right after Jonah's dealing with the pagan Ninevites? Jonah's praying again. Only this time, it's not a grateful prayer. It's an angry prayer. Uh, And that's really important. We'll see that uh, eventually. We're going to do a lesson called When Prayers Collide. Uh, Because when when we look at Jonah's angry prayer, and we realize that there are some key words that are repeated in that angry prayer, because the Hebrew mother of the author wanted us to hear echoes through those words of Jonah's grateful prayer, we're going to go back and read Jonah's grateful prayer, and it's the angry prayer is going to cast a whole new light on the grateful prayer. This has probably happened to you when you've watched a movie for the second time. Have you ever had the experience of watching a movie for the second time, and uh, you see something that happens, and you say, oh, now I get it because you are now reading that in light of the end of the story. And so you, you have a richer understanding of it. But then there's a fourth scene in the second episode that hangs out there all by itself. And that's Jonah's final lesson. When God says to him, basically, Jonah, may I have your permission to have compassion on the city of Nineveh. Uh, The final lesson where God is still trying to get Jonah to have his heart be more like the heart of God. And uh, so beautiful structure, huh? Two triads, commission, recommission, pagan sailors, pagan Ninevites, Grateful prayer, angry prayer, and then this 
scene that hangs at the end all by itself, which is really where the author's driving us. That's the whole goal of the story, is to get us to that last section. You know, this is just like Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, the creation story. We have day one, the creation of light. Day four, the creation of lights. We have day two, the creation of sea and land. And then we have, or rather, sea and sky. Then we have day two, four, five, uh, where you have the creation of the sea creatures that live in the sea and the birds that fly in the sky. Then on day three, we have the creation of land animals and humans, or rather dry land and humans. And then over here, we have the creation of the animals that live on the land and the human beings that are allowed to eat the vegetation that was created on day three. So we have two triads of three, just like Jonah. And then we have one more scene, so to speak, at the very end, the seventh day, when God takes his rest having done the work of creation, where God then begins to exercise his royal dominion over the universe that he has made. And uh, there's much going on in Genesis about uh, the um, almost the creation of the heavens and the earth are kind of a theological metaphor for God creating grand temple for, from which he will reign over the whole universe. And the Sabbath is where everything is driving us. It's the whole goal. Uh, and that's why the commandment says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. For the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, because in six days he made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested and made it holy. So um, not every piece of literature in the Old Testament is entirely unique. That's true in our literature as well. How many stories start once upon a time. You know, nobody copyrighted that and said, okay, from now on, nobody's allowed to tell a story that starts once upon a time. And you know, by the way, as soon as you pick up a book that starts once upon a time, that you're reading what? You're reading a fairy tale. How many of you have PhDs in English literature, and that's where you learned that once upon a time starts a fairy tale? None of us do. How do we know that? Well, because our mothers read us so many fairy tales and they all start, it's just part of our culture. Uh, and that's one of the challenges of learning to pay close attention to the details in a book like Jonah because they have their same conventions, but their conventions are not ours. They don't write the way we write, so we have to be kind of like detectives and unearth their conventions like repetition. Okay, now... This evening, we are going to look at the entire book of Jonah, but not by walking our way through it. I was talking with somebody before dinner about a telescope. Telescope. Um, you know, you can, let's take a camera. You can, uh, you can take a camera, and even our phone cameras are... You know, it's funny, we call them phones still. How many of you use that thing in your purse or pocket more as a phone than anything else? We have one young person that does. That's odd. I'm, I'm not saying you're odd. Your behavior's odd. I mean, we use it as a way to text. 
We use it as a way to take pictures. We use it as a way to um, FaceTime. We use it as a way to check social media. And every once in a while, we do what? We make a call. Now, my kids, rarely do I make a telephone call to my kids. I can be pretty sure that they're not going to do what? They're not going to answer it. If I do make a call and they don't answer it, what for sure do I not leave? I don't leave them a message because that's like lost in space. Remember that old TV show, Lost in Space? That's like lost in space. Yeah, if I really want to reach them, I just send them a text message. But we still call it, hey, I got a new, I got a new phone, even though that's not what we use it for very much at all anymore. But let's presume that we have a phone. Um, I live on the light side. I, I live in the light. I walk in the light. I have an Android. Um, the rest, the rest of my family has gone to the dark side. They have, they're, they're right there with Darth Vader. They have iPhones. Um, but my wife's iPhone is pretty cool in terms of being able to do like portrait and wide angle and, you know, so let's say we have a traditional single lens reflex camera. You can put a lens on there and get a wide angle of this auditorium. Or you could put a telephoto on there and just get the exit sign. There are different ways, uh, there are different lenses through which you can view this auditorium. And in the same way, we're going to look through one particular lens in order to study the whole book of Jonah, and that lens is Jonah's name. I would submit to you that if you understand the meaning of Jonah's name, Jonah, son of Amittai, you get the story. Now, um, before we actually get to that, still by way of introduction, I want to just give you a little demonstration that not always, not always, but often in the Old Testament, the meaning of somebody's name is important to the storyline. Um, let's just start with this guy named Adam. Adam means a man. It's also a proper noun, Adam. I have a nephew named Adam. But Adam can also mean humanity. And that's who Adam was. Uh, covenantally, Adam was the federal head of the entire human race. He, like we have representatives, he was the representative before God for the entire, for the entirety of humanity. And that's what his name means. Now, his wife's name got changed. At first, his wife's name was woman. And the text says, I'm going to call her woman because she was taken out of man. And in English, that's pretty good, right? Woe, man, was taken out of man, M-A-N. There's an M-A-N in both of those, so you can kind of see the connection. Um, in Hebrew, he was Ish, and she was Isha. You can hear the connection. But after the fall, Adam changed her name. To Eve. And Eve means living. And that's significant. Because what did God say to Adam? On the day you eat, what? On the day you eat, you're going to 
die. But Adam believed the promise of God. And how do we know Adam believed it? Not because he ever said, I believe the promise that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent. He never says that. But we can, like James, we can see his faith in his work. And his work was to change her name from Isha to Chava, from woman to the mother of the living. Why would he call her the mother of the living if he thought they were going to die any time? He called her mother of the living because he believed in the promise of God. His name is important. Her name is important. They had a son. The son's name is Cain. In Hebrew, Cain sounds like the word for acquire. Now remember, God had said to, uh, to Eve, I'm paraphrasing, it's only through toilsome labor that you are going to produce children. And so when Eve had her first son, she said, I'm going to call him acquire because I have acquired a male child with the help of God. Then they had another son, and his name was Abel. Anybody remember what happened between Cain and Abel? Cain killed Abel. Can you imagine what Eve experienced? She went through those nine months of carrying him. She bore him. She nursed him. She nurtured him. She raised him just to the prime of his life. It's like his 21st birthday in our culture. And he was senselessly killed by his brother. Abel's name means vanity. It's the same word that's used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. It was all for nothing. Ah, uh, But then God gave them another child, and she called him Seth. Um, I know that if you have lost a child, nothing replaces a child that is gone. I know that. Um, but I also know that when our fourth child was born, her name is Annie, she was such a balm of healing. You can't replace a child you've lost from one perspective. But I tell you, she healed deep hurts the day she was born. Seth means replacement. See, all these names in Genesis are significant. Um, what, what time are we going to like 8.30, 8.15 or so, and then some Q&A or whatever? Let's look quickly at the book of Ruth. So you thought you were just coming for Jonah. Um, there's this guy named Elimelech. There's a famine in, in the promised land where he's living by faith in God, but he doesn't have enough faith to stay in the promised land in God's presence when there's famine. He goes across the Jordan where they came from before they inherited. He goes to the land of Moab. Anybody remember what happened to Elimelech? He died. His name means Eli, my God, Melech is king. His name means my God is king, but he did not live in keeping with his name, did he? 
He has two, he has a, a son. Her name, uh, he, he has a wife. Her name is Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. And of course, when Naomi gets back from her ordeal in Moab, she says to the women, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. What was so bitter? Well, her husband died. She had two sons, Machlon and Chilion. Machlon basically means sick, and Chilion means come to an end. What happened to those two guys? They both died too. That's the bitter pill. See, in, in our culture, if you want to think about Naomi's situation, in our culture, think of a woman who is um, 60, no social security yet. By the way, between last time I was here and now, I have joined the ranks of Medicare. <laughs> and uh, I tell you, Medicare is pretty good. It's working very well. Uh, not quite drawing Social Security, but by the end of the year I will be. Uh, where were we? Oh, yeah. So she's 60. There's no Social Security. She has no 401K. She has no marketable skills. She has no means of employment. She has nowhere to live. She has no medical insurance. That's Ruth, because she didn't have a husband or male children. Because in that culture, that's what the husband and the male children were. They were the retirement, they were the medical insurance, they were the income, uh, they were everything. And so without those males, she was like what we called it when we lived back in D.C., a bag lady. All of her possessions were in like one bag in a grocery cart. And that's where she slept at night. If you've been to major metropolitan, I don't know about Montgomery, but big cities where I've been, that's not uncommon. That was uh, Naomi. Uh, then Ruth means friendship, because Ruth is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. This guy named Boaz, strength is in him, because he's going to do what's right no matter the cost. There was somebody ahead of him, and his name is actually Poloni Almoni. Sounds kind of weird. It is weird. It means so-and-so. In other words, the author doesn't give him a name. Why not? Because in the Bible, names often are an indication of someone's character. And he has no character, so what doesn't the author give him? He doesn't give him a name. That phrase, Poloni Almoni, it's used for like, oh yeah, he went over to such and such a place. No name. Oh, Mr. Mr. So-and-so. I call him, if I were translating the book of Jonah, I would just put Mr. No Name came. Uh, because that's the point of the story. Well, we could go on, but through the first chapters of Genesis and through the book of Ruth. Now, I'm not saying that every name in an Old Testament story has this kind of significance but it's always fun at least to ask if it's possible. Uh, but, but enough of that. So what we want to do is just look at the beginning of, uh, of uh, Jonah. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Uh, this is like Johnson, Johansson. Um, 
a lot of people had the same name. And so how would you differentiate one Jonah from another? They didn't have last names like we do. Uh, they would say, oh, I, I just saw Jonah, son of Amitai, the other day. Oh, you did? Was he playing with Jonah, son of Elijah? No, no, no. He was running down the street with Jonah, son of Baruch. That's just, you just connected somebody with their dad, and uh, that's how you knew which Jonah you were talking about. So we just want to look at these two things. Uh, first of all, Jonah and the significance of Jonah and then son of Amitai. So Jonah. Best I can do in English for the meaning of Jonah's name in this book is to call him silly and senseless. Now, Jonah actually means, in terms of its dictionary meaning, Jonah means dove. It's the same word that if you'd say, if you were like back in David's day, uh, hey, I just saw a Yonah flying by the window. Uh, that wouldn't be the prophet. Uh, that would be a dove. It's just the ordinary word for dove. Uh, but it was the word that Jonah's mother gave to him. Now, a dove can be used in the Bible in a variety of ways. In the Christian church, we use the dove symbolically in, in at least two ways. What's one way that we use dove? A symbol of what? Symbol of the Holy Spirit or a symbol of what? Peace. And so in, in one story, you could be using the word dove as a symbol of, of peace. In another story, you could be using the dove as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Like words have multiple meanings. Think of the word bank. Uh, I went to the bank before I came to withdraw some cash. Uh, I sat down by the bank of the river to contemplate. Did you see that great bank shot from midcourt last night? You can bank on my word. So words have a variety of meanings, and so do images, like dove. So we want to know what dove means in this context, and I think the best thing is silly and senseless. Now, why do I say that? Turn in your Bible to Hosea chapter 11. I'm sorry, 7-11, uh, What translations do we have out there? Do we have, uh, I use the, the NIV, the 2011 NIV. Anybody else an NIV reader? You, it's okay, you can raise your hand. It, there you go, yeah. In some circles, you, you can't. If you don't have an ESV, you know, you're, you're not a real Christian. How many ESVs are out there? Proof, point taken. Um, NLT, New Living Translation. Good, I, I like the New Living Translation, especially the first 75 Psalms, because I was on the translation team for that. They're really good. Um, New American Standard. New American Standard. King James is the king in the house. New King James. Okay, that's that's. That's, that's a little bit liberal. You've, you've strayed from the, the, the real translation. I still have my first Bible, King James. Black leather, I can remember the night my mother gave it to me, clear as a bell. It has like four of the different colored ribbons in it, you know, for marking special places. I, I, that's a keeper. Um, 
Okay, Hosea 7.11, ESV. Ephraim is like a dove. Notice, like a dove, that's a simile. It's being used metaphorically. What do you mean Ephraim is like a dove? Can you fill that out for me? Sure. Silly and without sense. Or the New American Standard. So Ephraim has become like, see this is metaphorical, it's a simile, like a silly dove without sense. And probably the reason for this is the flight pattern of the dove. Do you have hawks here? Yeah. I love watching hawks. Hawks are, I mean, they're like effortless when they fly. I remember once when we lived in uh, Southern California, we lived right up against a hill, and I sat out front one day, and I watched a hawk catch a thermal, and it just went up and up and up, and then it started to head east, and it was out of sight, and never once did I see it flap a wing. Hawks are just marvelous. One thing I like about living in Florida, we have the second largest bald eagle population in the United States. Number one is Alaska. Number two is Florida. First time I saw a bald eagle up close when I was driving my car, I thought, ooh, that's big. Um, but all of those, uh, those raptors are just so gracious when they fly. Yeah, not a dove. A dove flies like this. It's kind of like very erratic in its flight pattern, which is why it could easily be used in that ancient culture as a symbol of that which is silly and senseless, just like Hosea says. And that's, Jonah shows himself. It fits. It's one thing to propose that that's what Jonah means, but it can't be arbitrary. But when you study Jonah throughout the book, it fits. Jonah's behavior is silly and senseless throughout the book. Uh, We can see that, first of all, in Jonah's response to God's call. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Get up and go. And then we read, So Jonah got up to flee. Now, here's how Hebrew mothers taught their children to write stories. They said, if in your story somebody gives somebody a command to do something, have them give them that command in two words, not one. Get up, go. And then to underscore, like those Americans will do in a couple of centuries, you know, they'll put something in bold or italic or underline it or make the font bigger. But we don't have that technology yet. So what I want you to do to underscore the fact that somebody obeyed the command is I want you to repeat, there's our word again, I want you to repeat those same two words. This is what happens in um, 1 Kings 17. The word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, get up and go to Zarephath. So Elijah got up and he went to Zarephath. That's what you would expect out of any Israelite. If God says, get up and go, you expect the text to say, he got up and went. But our text says he got up, 
So it's setting you up, for he got up and went, but instead he pulls the rod out from underneath and he says he got up to flee. It would be kind of like um, somebody, God coming to somebody in um, Montgomery and saying, um, get up and go to New York City. So he got up to flee to Los Angeles. That's where uh, Tarshish was, the exact opposite direction of where God told him to go. Now, you got to remember, this wasn't like Jonah's dad that said, get up and go. Even that would be surprising for a son to disobey a father. This is God speaking to a prophet, not just any Israelite, saying, get up and go to Nineveh. So we are just shocked when it says he got up to flee to Tarshish and went in the exact opposite direction. I don't know about you. I think that's kind of silly and senseless to actually think that he can, like, escape God by going the opposite way. Like, that's going to work. Um, and, of course, we can see that silly and senselessness throughout the book. We've just alluded to the storm. Uh, look at, uh, at Jonah's response to God's storm. Interesting in that storm episode, when Jonah finally fesses up to these pagan sailors, he says, with a good bit of ethnic pride, uh, you don't see it in English as much, but in Hebrew he, it, it says, a Hebrew I am. He, he lapses into Yoda speech. Uh, but Hebrew, is, Hebrew has a word order, but he violates the word order and he puts a Hebrew right up front. Proud of it. A Hebrew I am. And the Lord, who made the sea and the dry land, I worship. Now in the ancient world, if you made something, you own that thing. And if you own it, you have the right to do with it whatever you want because you're in total control of it. Doesn't the potter have the right to take a pot that he has made? He has complete control over it. He can make use it for something special. Or if he wants to, he can just smash it. He's in control. He has the right to do whatever he wants. Ironic that Jonah says, I worship the God who has the right to do with the sea whatever he wants to do with it. Well, if you really believe that, why on earth are you trying to cross the sea to get away from God? Like you think that'll do you any good? He knew better theologically, but he wasn't living in keeping with, with what he knew to be true. That's true to his name, silly and senseless. Also, in that story, it's, it's interesting, and we'll look at this in greater detail. We're just taking a broad brush for Jonah tonight. Um, those pagan sailors, you know what they did when they were in trouble? They prayed. You know what Jonah did when they were praying? He slept. Those pagan sailors, you know what else they did? They worked. They did everything they could to lighten the ship, throwing all the cargo overboard. You know what Jonah was doing? Sleeping. Yeah. I say that those pagans were good, they were good Calvinists. 
And what I mean by that is they believed that God is absolutely sovereign. They had to have God do for them what they couldn't do for themselves, stop the storm. But they also believed they were responsible. And so they did everything they possibly could to get through the storm. So did they trust God or did they work for it? Yes, see, they're good Calvinists. Uh, they were they were neither let go and let God, nor were they, well, if, if we're getting out of here, it's all up to us. Uh, like one time, Terry Johnson, you, you did you work with Terry? You were members of the church. Uh, Terry Johnson, uh, pastor of um, Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah. Now, there's an oxymoron for you, an independent Presbyterian. Yeah, that's like say that's like uh, a Baptist who baptizes babies. Yeah, it just doesn't. But they exist. You know, that's the world we live in. At any rate, I was teaching in California, and Terry Johnson came out and I, to do a conference for us. And uh, he was on. He was preaching on prayer and how important prayer was. So for lunch, since I was what was I, dean of students, I was dean of chapel. I took him to lunch, and we went to a Chinese restaurant. And his fortune cookie, I remember it. His fortune cookie was, um, "Pray for what you want, but work for what you need." Yeah, not the sailors. That's not Calvinism. They were balanced Calvinists, completely dependent on God and completely doing everything that was in their realm of possibility to make it through the storm. At what was Jonah doing? Sleeping. Now, the sailors were also, in that storm, very concerned about people not perishing. The captain went to Jonah, woke him up, and said, Jonah, what are you doing sleeping? Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will come and help us so that we will not perish. And then later, the sailors tried to get Jonah back to dry land, but when God stopped them and they're ready to chuck him overboard, they pray again. They say, God, please don't let us perish for chucking this guy overboard if it turns out that he's innocent. Because we've done everything we can to get him back, but it's not working, so we have no alternative. The captain doesn't want people to perish. The sailors, pagan sailors, they don't look so pagan, do they? They don't want people to perish. What about Jonah? Jonah doesn't even care if he perishes. I do not think his, uh, his saying, pick me up and throw me over, was some altruistic, I'm willing to sacrifice my life for the good of the many. Now, he was just, he didn't care about anybody living or dying, not even himself. No concern for people perishing. Uh, and then we're going to look at this in more detail when we look at the, uh, the rest of the story. But Jonah's response to God's grace, I'm going to tell you in short, give you a Cliff's Notes version of those two prayers. In chapter 2, when Jonah is praying, he is very thankful for God's grace given to one sinner who showed no signs of repentance. In chapter 4, he's very angry because over 220,000 sinners who did repent are the recipients of God's grace. 
yeah, silly and senseless throughout the entirety of the book. But that's only half the story. Uh, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we ask the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer is twofold. The scriptures principally teach what we're to believe about God and what duties God requires of us. In Jonah, in his first name, we see the second part, what duties God requires of us and how Jonah failed to carry out those duties. But in the second part of the name, son of Amitai, we see a picture of who God is. Uh, son of Amitai. Amitai means my faithfulness. My faithfulness. And the my is God. So to put Jonah's full name into English, we would call him Mr. Silly and Senseless, who is nonetheless the object of God's unfailing love. God says, yeah, in spite of who he is, with all of his weaknesses, sins, failures, he still is the son of my faithfulness. We see this in the storm. Um, when Jonah gets on ship to cross the Mediterranean, uh, the story says God hurled a big wind that caused a big storm. And then that big storm ends up with Jonah getting thrown into the sea. And it's an odd word for throw, especially for throw a wind. You don't throw a wind, do you? You might send a wind, you might cause a wind, but the text says God hurled a wind, and it's the same word that is used for what the sailors do when they hurl the cargo overboard, and it's the same word for what the sailors do when they hurl Jonah overboard. In other words, through the, what's the R word? Repetition. Through the repetition of that word throw, the author is telling us that those pagan, in quotes, those pagan sailors are an awful lot like God. God hurls. They hurl. They hurl. That repetition is saying, I want you to think of these sailors like God. And in fact, by the end of that uh, second scene, it says that these people were God-fearers. They feared the Lord. And of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? So they had been, in our language, converted. Um, but Jonah gets thrown into the sea. How is that the son of my faithfulness? Well, I think it was Sheldon Aachen. Didn't he write a book called A Severe Mercy? Yeah. That's, there's a little tension in that, isn't there? A severe mercy. Yeah, it was very, very painful. Very painful. But um, it was God's mercy. I, I love, we, we sang that tonight. What, what were the words that we sang? Something about 
Every joy or trial falleth from above. Not just the joys, but also the trials come to us from God's love. Well, that's not what the song says, but it rhymed and it fit the meter. That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I like that. It was a severe mercy. God was not disciplining. God wasn't throwing Jonah overboard because God was throwing Jonah away. God was throwing Jonah overboard because God wanted to bring Jonah back. It was his mercy. And, you know, sometimes that's what it takes. People nowadays call it tough love. Um, it is tough, isn't it? Sometimes as parents, it's so tough that we don't do it. It's just too tough. But it is love. Kids, if your parents ever have to exercise that really tough love. Yeah, I remember with our oldest boy, there were times when he was in high school in the morning when we had one finger on the dial of the phone to call the police because we just couldn't get them. We couldn't get them to go to school. The police would. They'd come in the car and they'd take them to school. Um, there were times when we wanted him to be gone. And uh, But in those times, we would talk and uh, we would say, you know, it's hard, but we have to build bridges. We can't build a wall. No, that's not a political comment. But if you build walls between you and your children, you lose the ability to speak into their lives. And so sometimes you have to swallow your pride. And you have to build bridges. We now have a wonderful relationship with a mature 36-year-old who has his own remodeling company. Yeah, it wasn't always that way, was it? It took a lot of hard things along the way to get there. And so when God throws Jonah overboard, don't think, oh yeah, there's that angry God making people pay uh, it looks like that on the surface, but that's because we look on the outward, but God looks on the heart. And God knows his own heart. And God knew that the reason why he threw Jonah overboard was because God had a love for Jonah that just would not let him go. A love that will not let me go. So we see God's faithfulness to Jonah in the storm. We also see God's faithfulness to Jonah in the fish. Now, contrary to my recollection of the fish when I was a kid in Sunday school, the fish was not an ooh, yucky place that Jonah wanted to get out of. Our language would be Jonah had one foot in the grave. In the picture of Jonah, as we will see, Jonah actually descended down into the netherworld, the realm of the dead. Sheol, as your ESV translates it. See, ESV uses Sheol with a capital S because it's a proper noun, it's a place. He goes down into Sheol. 
and the fish goes down and breaks through the gates of Sheol. This is where Jesus gets his language, that the gates of hell will not prevail against me. The fish goes down and snatches Jonah out of the grip of death and brings him back. And so when Jonah is out of Sheol, and he's in the fish, he's singing a song. And here's the song in short. Praise the Lord. I used to be in Sheol, and now I'm in the belly of the fish. What a great place to be. It's a song of thanksgiving. It, and I'm sure you remember everything that I said last year because you took notes on it. And even though you threw the notes away, you still remember everything. That prayer is not a lament. Help, Lord, get me out of the fish. It's a song of thanksgiving. Praise the Lord. The fish got me out of hell. Yeah, so when Jonah is in the fish, he's experiencing that uh, faithful love of God. And at the end of that story, he confesses the truth. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That means God has the, God has the, the, the right to save Anybody he wants to save, as long as it's me. And as long as it's not them. Yeah, there's great irony there. But it's still true. Whether Jonah was whacked out in one way or another, if a, if a non-Christian, if, if, if an atheist says something that is true, it's true. Because all truth is God's truth. And so Jonah speaks the truth here, even though his heart is not in it. And uh, the faithful love of God is also seen uh, at the end in that repeated, notice the word repeated, in that repeated question, twice God says to Jonah, are you justified in being angry at me? Are you justified in being angry at me? God was not looking for information. Parents, you know this, right? You ask your kids questions. Did you do that? You're not looking for information. You know very well that they did it. My wife is an expert at this. She's getting ready to retire. She's been a middle school guidance counselor. Do you know how, do you know how much lying middle schoolers do? how they come into the office and they say, no. And my wife just has this uncanny ability within like two sentences. Oh, yeah, I just do what I did. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I'm glad she's not my mother. Um, God is not trying to get information out of Jonah. He's asking those questions because he's trying to get information to Jonah about Jonah's heart. You see, through all of this, even at the end of Jonah's angry prayer, God hasn't given up on Jonah. God still loves him with a love that will not let him go. Sure, he is silly and senseless, but he is still son of my faithfulness. That never changes. And then in that question, at the very end, may I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Uh, God doesn't need Jonah's permission. 
while he is asking for permission, he's really not asking for permission. He's really asking Jonah to take a look at his own heart. To the very end of the story, God remains faithful to Jonah. I think the New Testament puts it this way. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. That's the story of Jonah, in short. It's a story about, you know what's, what's interesting? Is that in the book of Jonah, Jonah's never called a prophet. We know from another text in 1 Kings that Jonah was a prophet, but he's never called a prophet. And when he identifies himself, he doesn't say, I'm a prophet. He says, a Hebrew I am. Jonah is like Joe Israelite. He's a garden variety Israelite. Because in the book, Jonah represents all of Israel. The story was delivered to ancient Israel so that they would know that they are Jonah. They would recall God's call onto their lives as a nation. In particular, to be different than the Canaanites. You know why they went into exile? Because they became indistinguishable from the Canaanites. And God wanted Israel to read the book of Jonah, see themselves in Jonah, realize how much Jonah was in them. Happy for the grace of God when it's for us. But they shouldn't get, and whoever the they is, they shouldn't get the grace of God. They don't deserve it. They're so bad. Well, once you say they don't deserve it, What's that reveal about what you think about God's grace in your life? You do deserve it. That's what you think. If they don't, you must think to one degree or another that you do. And of course, once you think that you deserve it, it's no longer what? It's no longer grace anymore at all. And so the the book of Jonah wants Jonah to look inside himself. And it wants us to go on that journey with him. To look at what's inside of us and God's call on our lives and the ways, the ways in which God has said to us, get up and go to Nineveh and we have gotten up and we've just not done God's will and we've gone to Tarshish. But the book also wants us to look at the one whom the New Testament tells us is greater than Jonah. You see, because Jesus came and God said to Jesus, get up and go. Get up and go to Calvary. And so Jesus got up and he went to Calvary. He is the opposite of Jonah. He fully complied, not just externally, but from his heart of hearts. His will was to do the will of his Father. So you might think of Jesus this way. 
Jesus lived a a perfect life, unlike Jonah. So that that perfect, unlike Jonah life could be placed over you. Like a, a beautiful tablecloth. We used to have this, uh, well, we still have it. We have a small table, oak, um, has little wings that pull out on one side, real small, four people can sit around it. It was my parents' very first table. And uh, I don't know, that table's probably, see, they were married 65 years before they died. That, that table's like in its 70s. Um, my oldest boy now, it's, it's moved around, but it's, it's been up, it's been used, it's been put away, somebody needs it. But uh, yeah, it's the object of my faithful love. I have a love for that table that will not let it go. I'll let my kids use it, but they can't have it. When they're done, it comes back to me. When I die, they can do whatever they want with it. I'm no, I'm no longer in control of that. But what was I saying that for? Oh, yeah, that table. Um, that table had been, my brother had it. My brother painted it. So when I got it, I had to strip it. But it was quite never the same. And then it got refinished partly here, partly there. It wasn't the best-looking oak table anymore. It had a lot of flaws in it. But, you know, whenever we got out a nice tablecloth and put it over top, couldn't see any of those flaws. All you could see was the beautiful tablecloth. That's what Jesus did for you by living a perfect life. That, that tablecloth of, of his non-Jonahness, his righteousness, the Father just puts that over top of you now. And when he looks at you right now, he sees somebody who has never once in the smallest way been like Jonah. He sees someone when he has said, get up and go, that person has always gotten up and went just like I asked him to. Because he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But God did say, get up and go to Calvary. Because Jesus also had to pay the penalty because God knows that you really have been like Jonah way too many times and his eyes are too pure to look on evil. So Jesus goes to Calvary to pay the penalty for the Jonah. That is you. That is me. So that now when the Father looks down from heaven, and he can see right through the ceiling here, no, no issue for him. Yeah, talk about a telescope. He's got great telescopic vision. Uh, he can see right through my bald head, right into my heart. And... Um, but when he looks at you tonight, you know what he sees? He sees somebody that is absolutely perfect. Never once having been anything at all like Jonah. And you see, yeah, that's a great story, but I know that there's still Jonah in me. Well, guess what? God does too. That's why we believe not only in justification, that Christ's righteousness covers you and his death pays the penalty for your sins, but we also believe in sanctification. See, the Holy Spirit is in the process of getting rid of the Jonah that still remains in you uh, 
from time to time. You know, sometimes to get rid of that Jonah, God uses his severe mercy. I, I, I don't ever want to experience God's severe mercy, and I don't want you to. But if you ever do, always, you can choose to focus. You can choose to focus on, wow, this is severe. Or you can choose to focus on, wow, this is God's mercy. It'll make a difference in terms of how you go through those deep waters. Just remember, no matter how severe it is, it's a love that will never let you go. And uh, you, you embrace, embrace that transforming work of the Spirit. Uh, you and I are silly and senseless far too often in our walk with God. Let's just own that. But never forget, you are the son of my faithfulness. You are the object of God's unfailing love. And his love for you does not depend on you not being silly and senseless. Far too often we relate to God in kind of a performance way. When we're doing good, he loves me. When we're not doing so well, he doesn't like me very much. But just remember, God's love for you is performance-based. But it's not your performance that it's based on. It's based on the performance of Christ. Who, when the Father said, get up and go, he got up and went. And that's why God's love will never let you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, uh, the story of Jonah. Uh, what's in a name? Someone once asked. And uh, in the name of Jonah, there's the reality of who we are and there's the reality of who you are. And may we grow in our ability to rest in your love. And I pray for your children here. I don't know what they're going through. But especially if anyone's facing uh, severity in their lives, just please give them the eyes of faith to know that every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love, in whose name we pray. Amen.